0: Uh, I want to begin by thanking Father Fisher um, and the St. Ambrose community. A lot of you are out tonight, and uh, welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Thank you for opening your doors to us. The Institute was started about three and a half years ago. Uh, We go around from parish to parish, um, at no charge to to the parish, at no charge to attendees, to offer Catholic education in history, philosophy, theology, to give people the context for the faith which they hold. You believe a lot about the faith, but why do you believe it? What is the foundation? If the foundation is weak, the house will fall. And it is my goal in life not to let that house fall, but to build it up. So, my name is Sabatino Carnazzo. I'm the director of the Institute. You can also get on our website and download for free audio files of all of our past talks. Three and a half years of a library Where's Keith? How many hours do we have on that now? 200 hours 200 hours of teaching, orthodox teaching on the Catholic faith. Okay, so you can get on there. You're at home. Click on that. Listen while you're doing dishes, whatnot. What will you get at the Institute of Catholic Culture? You will get the Catholic faith not watered down. No apologies for it. It is what we believe, and we believe it is given to us for the salvation of the world. So we welcome you to come here to learn about the Catholic Church, to learn about our faith, and to learn about Jesus Christ. Our speaker tonight is the first layman to receive both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, in Rome. He has taught at St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, and at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. He is a knight Grand Cross of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, and he is a consulter to the Pontifical Council for the family. I could keep going. He's got nine kids, but he just had his fourth grandchild last week. Please welcome Dr. Timothy O'Donnell.
1: It's the Feast of St. Bernadette Subaru tonight. Did you know that? Mary appeared, she only turned back and said, penance, penance, and more penance, so you're going to get it tonight. So anyway, it's, it's good to see you coming out here. Can you all hear me all right? Is that sound all right? Okay. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you uh, and to have a chance to discuss such a horrible topic. <laughs> Last time I was here, we were talking about the infancy narratives in Luke, which was very, very beautiful and enjoyable. Uh tonight's topic is a little more difficult, but uh, nevertheless, it is an important topic. So I thought what I'd like to do uh, this evening, the whole question of the fall of Jerusalem, since it centers on the temple and the worship in the temple, I'd like to try to do four things tonight. I have what, an hour? I have an hour. Okay. Okay. Well, it's Lent. <laughs> All right. What I'd like to do is give you a little history of the temple, a little history of the temple, talk about Revelation's attitude towards the temple, a brief overview, sort of Old Testament, and then sort of Christ's attitude towards the temple, and then look specifically and concretely at our Lord's warning about the end of the world and the destruction, and you all, a lot of you did have Bibles, right? Well, it's good that it's a mixed congregation, that's, that's good. and. Uh, I'll give you the references and I'll wait, I realize it's Catholic groups, so it takes you longer to, Protestants can just get there real quick, you know, but that's all they have. But anyway, that's okay. We can learn a lot from them. We can learn a lot from them. Oh, come on, it's not a sin to laugh at that unless you take pleasure in it, then you got to go to confession. All right, and then lastly, we'll talk about the destruction and the significance of that destruction. Does that sound okay? So those four points, that sound okay to everybody? If not, I can't change now, but anyway, that's what I sort of thought. And the reason I thought of doing it that way is because the fall of Jerusalem is really horrible. It's very horrible. I'll give you a couple lengthy quotations uh, that I think will try to make that come alive to you. Uh, Actually, it was so horrible when I was going through Josephus' account, uh, I couldn't do it at Christmas. I put it down. It's very horrible, very dark. Uh, the whole book is available from Penguin. You can get it in a paperback form, and it's, it's, it's fascinating reading if you're interested in doing that sort of thing. So let's start off with the temple. First of all, the thing we want to remember is there were three Jewish temples, not all at one time, but in sequence. There were actually three temples. First was the Temple of Solomon, which was dedicated probably around the year 950 B.C., Uh, and lasted till the year 587. Secondly, there was the Temple of Zerubbabel, which was established in 537. And uh, the third temple was the actual Temple of Herod, which was begun in 19 BC, and wasn't really finished, completely finished, sort of like the way St. Peter's is never completely finished, they're always adding something to it, until 64 AD, just six years before it was destroyed. All right. Uh, the Hebrew word "hakel" means, the word for temple means great house. It be translated the house or the house of Yahweh. Around 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before the coming of Christ, David captured Jerusalem and he built for himself a royal palace, But then he began to feel guilty. Here he is living in a palace, and the ark of the Lord is out in the middle of nowhere, a tiny little town called Kiriath-Jerim. And so he decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Nathan approves, the prophet of David approves David doing that, actually approves David's line, that his line will last forever, and gives a lot of prophecy, but not the building of the temple. David is told by the prophet Nathan he is not to build the temple because he was a man of blood. He was a warrior king. He was a fighter. Remember David and Goliath and all the... He was a great man, but fought and shed a lot of blood, a lot of Philistine blood. But the temple was to be built by a king of peace, and that was to be his son Solomon. And Solomon built that temple in Phoenician style. The architects and the workmen, because the Jews had no tradition of construction of anything like that, they were all from King Hiram of Tyre. And so he sent all of these Phoenician workmen who came to uh, the palace and uh, began the building of the temple. The temple took seven years to complete, seven years of working there. Now, it's interesting to note that the Book of Kings tells us all of the stone was hewn to the proper shape in the quarry all the woodwork for the temple was prefabricated, so there would be no sound of hammer or any tool in the construction project itself. All of that was done away from the area. Now, the building was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. There were two freestanding bronze columns decorated with capitals. It's important to have this sort of an, at least an imaginative image to appreciate this. And the columns were named Joaquin and Boas. One meant in strength and the other he will establish. And they were all done by uh, craftsmen taken from the city of Tyre. The doors were of olive wood and the interiors paneled with cedar covered with beautiful floral elements. And it's important to try to get an image of that Uh, if you can. Now, up above in the Holy Place, there were clear story sort of lattice windows that would let light in. There was a golden altar of incense, table of the showbreads where the 12 loaves for the 12 tribes was there, and 10 lampstands, those beautiful menorah candles, large lampstands that gave illumination to the Holy Place. And there were two double doors that led to the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. 30 by 30 by 30, evidently it was raised. Now in that Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple was placed the Ark. And overshadowing the Ark were two large cherubim. Each of those angels were 15 feet high and had a wingspan of 15 feet. So if you put something that size in a cube, 30 by 30, you sense it was really filled with the presence of the Ark. And there was no light in the room. It was total darkness. Now in the court, in the front of the altar was a bronze altar where the burnt offerings was, and that altar was 30 feet wide and 15 feet high. Can you imagine that? Ascending up there before in the porch, just in front of the Holy Holies, and that's where the sacrifice would take place. They also had a bronze sea for the washing. I mean, the religion of Israel was really a religion of blood. There was constant bloodshed and animal sacrifice, especially in the morning and the evening when a special lamb was offered on that altar. The Bronze Sea was used for washing. The Bronze Sea was about seven and a half feet high, 15 feet wide, basin full of water, and it was supported by 12 bronze oxen in groups of three, each pointing to the different directions of the compass. Uh, that brass sea or Bronze Sea weighed 25 tons to give you a sense of the mass and grandeur. In addition, there were 10 mobile bronze lavers that could take the water and could be used for washing in other parts of that area. That great temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians in the year 587 BC. The second temple, that of Zerubbabel, we have almost no data on that temple at all. It was begun in 537. Remember when the remnant that had been off in Babylon, you know, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. They came back and they rebuilt the temple in 537. It was interrupted by some of the local peoples that didn't want the temple to be built, resumed again in 520, and was solemnly dedicated in the year 515. It appears to have been the same dimension, same size as Solomon's temple, but lacked a lot of the beautiful ornamentation because you didn't have the grandeur of the monarchy and it was an impoverished remnant that came back. Nevertheless, they built that temple. And that temple stood until 19 BC. And then it will be replaced by the third and the final temple. Despite Julian the apostate's effort to rebuild the temple, he did try to do that, to try to disprove Christ's prophecy, But there's all sorts of accounts from historian of earthquakes, flashes of lightning and things, and he had to abandon the project. Interesting. Anyway, the temple of Herod, Herod was an Idumean. He was more heathen than Jewish. And as a matter of fact, the Jews hated Herod. They didn't like him at all. And the building project was an effort to try to ingratiate himself with the Jews over whom he had been made king by imperial Rome. Now it's interesting to note that it's Herod who builds this third and final temple. Now remember David couldn't build the temple and you remember why. He was a warrior. He was a man of blood. Now if he was unworthy to build the temple, we're talking about Herod the Great. Augustus Caesar was a friend of Herod the Great, knew Herod well and said very significantly it was easier or safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his sons. Kosher laws, you know, you don't, we don't do pork. All right. I'm so thankful Jesus came, because I love bacon, I love ham, and I love pork chops. But I mean, That's not the primary reason, but it's okay to laugh at that. But if you take too much pleasure, you do have to go to confession, and there are priests back there that can hear your confession, fortunately. But he spared no expense, 10,000 workmen working day and night. He trained 1,000 of the priests, 1,000 of the Levites, as masons to work on the most sacred parts so that only the priest's hands would touch the stones. It was begun in 19 B.C. and was basically finished in 10 years by 9 B.C., so it's interesting to note the decorations continue. It's one of those never-ending projects. And it wasn't completely finished until 64 A.D., but started in 19 and finished, putting that in quotes, in 9 B.C. Now, right around then, there was a young girl that was born in a backwater town in Galilee, whose womb was going to be a greater temple than what was being built in Jerusalem. Jerusalem because that womb was going to hold God incarnate, which is a far greater thing. All right, it was finished in 64, just six years before its destruction. Now, the entire enclosure of Herod's temple, and I've got you a couple of maps here that hopefully will help you. The large one showing you Jerusalem at 70 AD, that will be helpful when we talk about the assault on Jerusalem and the war in Jerusalem. But if you go on the back side, yes, there is a backside. you have an image of Herod's temple and the temple enclosure. On the top where you would see the, the kit where it says Herod's temple enclosure, that's the larger picture of the whole sacred area. And then the other one is a close-up of just the temple and the inner courtyard area. The small rectangle. Does that make sense to everybody? So you can see what we are looking at. Picture is worth a thousand words. So I was able to save about a thousand words by doing that. The entire area was 2,350 feet in perimeter. So it was much larger than Solomon's temple. And it was designed like a trapezoid, as you can see. There were eight gates, two on the south, four in the west, one in the north and one in the east. One would ascend into the temple through the south gates. You see where the steps are. That's how you would ascend. and There were covered porticos. So if you want to picture Mary and Joseph bringing baby Jesus, they approach from the south going under the covered portico, approaching the steps up into the courtyard. right? The western gates were conducted to the city by viaducts, which ran over the Valley of Tropeon, which now the Valley of the Cheesemakers, which you see on the map there. The east gate near the site of where the present golden gate in the city of Jerusalem was probably the gate used by Jesus on Palm Sunday. But the whole enclosure was divided into several courts, and this is important to get a sense of what's going to be going on here. Uh, in the New Testament times. The outer court which you see there was called the Court of the Gentiles. That was the largest court in the ancient temple and it was surrounded on four sides by a colonnade. Beautiful columns, beautiful columns of white marble and granite. (laughs) The royal porch was on the south side which you see marked there and that's one of the spots where Jesus taught. Uh, The uh, porch of Solomon was on the east side. The pinnacle of the temple was in the southeast corner. And that's where the ground falls from the top of the pinnacle to the valley of Kidron. It was about a 450-foot drop. So that gives you a sense of how high and how grand uh, this truly was, a truly remarkable building. Now. After that, you had, that basically was the court of the Gentiles, that large outer court area, and anyone could go there. Gentile, even if you were a, a ritually unclean Jew, you could enter into that court. Men, women, Gentiles, and we forget this sometimes that there were Gentiles who were converts to the Jewish faith who would come there to pray because they believed that there was one God. That was their court. And it was separated from the temple and the other courts by a balustrade. And there were inscriptions, and actually we've uncovered two of them, inscriptions written in Latin and in Greek on the balustrade warning, no Gentile may go any further. You go any further, you will be killed. All right, you will be killed. The inner courtyards and the temples were only for God's chosen people, those who were ritually clean. And under pain of death. Remember, Paul, when he comes back to the temple, was accused of bringing this Ephesian into the temple and they want to stone him. He's brought this unclean Gentile in there. So when you start hearing St. Paul talking about the mystery hidden from the ages that in Christ, Jew and Gentile have been reconciled, you have to. we sort of take that for granted now, but realize what a huge thing that was. There was a huge separation between Jew and Gentile warning, you cannot go into that temple. If you do, you will be killed because you are not Jewish or you are ritually unclean. Now, the sacred enclosure formed a rectangle sort of in the west center of the court of the Gentiles. And it was raised upon a terrace and wall, then you could enter through nine gates. Again, these sort of interesting numbers all have some symbolism. Four gates in the north, four in the south, and one in the east. And the east was the most beautiful of all the gates. It was called the Corinthian Gate by Josephus, or the beautiful gate in Acts of the Apostles. And the first court reached from the east was the court of the women, This was five steps above the court of the Gentiles. When you left the court of the Gentiles, you would go five steps up. Do you find this interesting? Is this? Okay, so you go up five steps and you would enter into the court of the women. Uh, Women could not pass beyond that. So the women did better than the Gentiles, all right? But they couldn't pass beyond that. Now here, interestingly enough, were the alms boxes. The corbona. Remember Jesus talking about the widow putting in the mite, and these boxes were like upside down trumpets, and you would put the coin in and it would rattle and go all the way down. So you know who has the money in the family. All right. Anyway. so and it, Just teasing. Uh, you can laugh at that. That's the court of the women. The women have the money. They control the purse strings, et cetera. And women are a lot more pious, and everybody knows that. We men are always slapping along trying to catch up with the women because they're naturally virtuous and naturally spiritual. But anyway, all of that money, and there were 13 of those boxes, went to support the temple cult. Also, the treasury was there. Now, the next, as you proceed on, as you go in from there, was the court of the Israelites. or called the court of Israel. Again, raised up five steps above the court of the women. Now, that court, just to give you a sense of the size, it was 280 feet by 202 feet, and again, there were all these gates, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, one gate on the east, which was called by Josephus the Niconor gate because there was a wealthy Jew from Alexandria that paid the money to make this beautiful gate from that direction. Now, this was the place where the worshipers would gather. If you wanted to worship in the temple, you went into the court of Israel. That's where you would go during the burning of incense, when incense would be burned before the Holy of Holies in the morning or in the late afternoon. That's where everyone would gather. That's where the prayer of the Pharisees took place. That's where the disciples went to play. When Paul took his vow and went back, that's the part of the temple where he went to. After that, you get into the court of the priests, and this surrounds the temple building itself, the court of the priests. You see the dotted line there, and that's where the priests, and there were all sorts of little rooms, houses, places where things would be stored, uh, etc. And, of course, there you see the large altar to get a sense of the immensity of the sacrifice Uh, that was done there. So that was the altar of the burnt offerings, which stood between the gate of Niconor and the temple. So the Holocaust, the burning would go up before the very front of the great temple. Now, uh, Herod followed the tripartite form that was used by Solomon. It was divided, the temple was divided into three areas. First you had the porch. Now the porch was 12 steps, one for each of the tribes, 12 steps above the court of the priests. And the porch was entered through the great doorway. There was this enormous door, 60 foot wide and 30 foot high that would en- you would enter in that way. And then, after that, there was another doorway that would actually take you into the holy place, number two, which was not the holy of holies, but what they called the holy place, the proper of the temple itself. That doorway leading into there was 30 feet wide and 15 feet high, and it led from the porch to the holy place. And in the holy place, number two, which you see on your little diagram there, That's where the altar of incense was, that's where the table of the showbreads, and there was also a seven-branch menorah which burned in front of the great curtain that hung there. If you saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, it's a very quick scene, but when the curtain is torn, you see the menorah fall and the lintel of the temple over there that was holding the curtain, that breaks too. That was all accurate. He was really capturing what was found in Talmudic sources and also in the gospels. And, of course, that's where Zechariah goes, you know, to burn incense. And only one priest went in there at a time. That's why when there's an angel appears on the side, it's like, whoa, you know, he's supposed to be there all by himself lighting the incense. So it would have very much startled him. And then beyond that, the Holy of Holies, that perfect cube, same dimensions, 30 feet by 30 feet, completely empty now because the Ark, of course, was lost. We believe taken by one of the prophets. And if you read the book of Maccabees, you know where the ark is. So if you really want to do a Raiders of the Lost Ark, you shouldn't be digging in Egypt. But anyway, that's, that's an, just encourage you to read Maccabees if you want to find out where it is. All right. Nothing in there, total darkness, there was a little stone that marked the spot where the ark stood. That's all that was there. It was entirely empty, totally dark. The high priest alone would enter there on the Day of Atonement pleading for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And the Holy of Holies was separated by this great veil of violet, scarlet, purple, and white threads indicating the four elements, beautifully done. And, of course, the temple itself was ornamented with white marble and limestone. Just to give you a sense of the impression this made, I hope this gives you a a visual image, but uh, A.H.M. Jones, in his book, The Herods of Judea, gives the following description of the temple, appearances. And I quote, just listen, drink it in, like a good chardonnay, all right? (laughs) Oh, it's Lent. I'm sorry. All right. Have some Kool-Aid. All right. The whole structure was a fantastic tour de force and must have presented a most startling appearance, more like a modern skyscraper than any known building in antiquity. No expense was spared in the materials of the structure or its decoration. It was built after the manner of many Syrian temples, but of huge blocks of stone. Josephus gives us a typical mentions of a single block as 45 by 6 by 5 cubits. That's massive. The stone employed was a brilliant white marble. Josephus compares the general aspect of the building seen at a distance to a mountain covered with snow. The east front of the holy place was plated with gold, which reflected the rays of the rising sun with dazzling splendor. The great folding doors of the holy place were likewise plated with gold, and across them was drawn a magnificent embroidered veil whose four colors typified the four elements. Over the doorway hung a giant golden vine whose clusters each individual grape was as large as a man." Does that give you a sense? Coming from the Mount of Olives, watching the sun rising in the east and just being blinded by the gold of the temple. as, As great as you think the Dome of the Rock is, it was nothing compared to the Jewish temple. A number of people who visited said, he who has not seen Herod's temple has not seen anything beautiful. It was truly a remarkable work. Now, its theological significance. Let's move on to the second point. All right. In the Old Testament, it was presented as the seat and symbol of Yahweh's presence among his people. When the temple was dedicated, the shekinah, the cloud came, and it filled the temple. It was the seat of Yahweh's presence. Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 1 said that that temple was the mountain of the house of Yahweh and it was destined to become the highest mountains, and Isaiah prophesied that all peoples would come to that mountain to receive instruction from the Lord. The prophet Micah in chapter four, verse one says, it was to be a house of prayer for all people, for all people. Now, there were other thoughts, other strains in the Old Testament when it came time to speak about the temple. Some thought that the temple would disappear At the time of the messianic fulfillment, Jeremiah in chapter 7, verse 1, said the temple gave a sense of false security, and the existence of the temple was no guarantee of the righteousness of Israel, and actually predicted its destruction in chapter 26, verse 1. Isaiah in chapter 66, verse 1, said that the temple was not necessary. Not necessary. And of course, in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 42, he describes a new temple. That there would be a new temple in Messianic times. And the temple was going to become the source of streams of living water. Now, that's very significant. The new temple was going to become a source of streams of living water that would refresh the earth. That'll be very important when we get into John's Gospel. Now, Brief overview of the New Testament, Jesus' attitude, what did he think about that? And then I'd like to go back and actually, since you do have Bibles, look at some of those passages. Is that okay? But first, just a brief overview so we can all get our bearings. There is no doubt Jesus and the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph, were devout Jews. They really fulfilled the cultic practices and all the requirements of the law. Remember, Luke says, that after they were lost for three days, where do they find him? In the temple. I must be about my father's business in my father's house. So does he have respect and veneration for that temple? Absolutely. You always wonder, the child Jesus, age 12. There's no identity crisis, by the way. He knows exactly who he is and what he's supposed to be doing at age 12. That's another topic, though. We also know that Jesus loved to teach in the temple. He taught in the different porticos, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, since his gospel focuses primarily not on Galilee, but on Jerusalem, has most of Jesus' teaching on special Jewish feast days associated with the temple. In chapter 7, 8, 10, and 11 of John's gospel, Jesus is teaching in the temple. He shows great respect For the temple. In the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, he refers to it as the house of God. The house of God. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he calls it a house of prayer. And, of course, in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 16, he calls it the house of his father. The house of his father. The temple is holy. Our Lord says the temple is holy and it sanctifies whatever is found inside that temple. He pays homage to the temple by paying the temple tax. Remember that strange thing where he's talking to Peter and he says, throw a little line and you'll catch a fish and you'll find a stater. It's a weird thing, you know. But pay this for you and for me. Think how that must have made Peter so happy. He he associated himself with me. Pay this for me and for thee. Even though he says he's free as a son, he doesn't have to pay it because he's the son, but that he wants to fulfill all the righteous so many times. He doesn't have to do it. There doesn't need, he doesn't need to be redeemed at the purification. Mary doesn't need to be purified, but they do this. He doesn't really need to be baptized, but he does it. The incredible humility of God shown time and time again. Now, one of the great moments, as you all remember, is the cleansing of the temple. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. If something is mentioned in all four Gospels, it's really important, all right? Now, what's interesting here is uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place it at the end of Jesus' missionary life after the three years. It's the culmination of his arrival in Jerusalem. John places it at the beginning. I'm of the opinion that he probably cleansed the temple more than one time. He probably had to do it twice. And it's difficult to understand because, you know, driving away the animals in a very real sense was an attack on the temple. You to be aware of that. The animals were absolutely necessary for the cultic sacrifice. Driving them away was an assault on the temple. And, of course, John mentions it right at the very beginning because it's going to be so important for John. He drives them out at the beginning, and then what does he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. All right, so there's something going on there we'll have to take a look at, and we will. But what's interesting to note is all of those shops where the animals were being sold, they were all owned by the high priest. They all belonged to Caiaphas. So he's making tons of money. So if at the beginning of his ministry he clears it out, do you think they're going to say, oh, okay, Jesus, you're right, we just won't do this anymore? (laughs) As soon as he leaves, they're going to bring him back. And then when he comes back, what do they say? By what authority do you do this? All right. Talk about not a way to make friends and influence people. Remember Caiaphas is going to be the primary agent along with the other high priests. They're going to want to kill him. I mean, this is really threatening them. And then you also had the problem, that Gentile money could not be used for the purchase of the animals. So you have all the money changers. You have to use the Jewish shekel and the exchange rate was horrible you're giving all your Gentile money. Yeah, you get the Jewish coin, but they're making tons of money with all of this. That's why when he says, show me the coin of tribute, and he doesn't have one, but they do. And he says, whose image is on it? Caesar. Okay. He's hammering them in all the, I mean, once you get into it, he's hammering them all the time in a loving way. All right. In a loving way. Should emphasize that. Now, When John says that he cleansed the temple at the very beginning, it's because why? Christ himself is going to become the cultic center, the place where God is present. And that's one of, and it's not unique to John because remember in the synoptics, they know of this too because remember in Matthew 12, 6, when Jesus is talking about the temple, he says, a greater than the temple is here. You know, sometimes think people, John, is totally in isolation and different from the synoptics, but you find so many stratas where they are reinforcing one another. Remember that passage says, one greater than the temple is here. Well, what's the temple? It's the house of God. It's the very gate of heaven. And he's saying, one is here who is greater than the temple. That's what you call implicit Christology. He's claiming to be divine. He's greater than the temple. And it's going to be his body that will become the center of all that. He predicts its destruction in all of the synoptics, and it's hinted at at John's gospel as well. And we'll take a look at those passages. But then when he talks about raising a new temple, it gives full meaning to the messianic view of the temple found in the old prophets, that in the messianic times, there will be a new and a perfect temple. All right. Now, of course, in imitation of the G- of Jesus, the early Christians continued to worship at the temple. Paul partook in the temple cult. There is an anti-temple theme in Acts of the Apostles, though. When you get to Stephen, remember they accuse him, he's preaching against the temple, saying Jesus is going to come back and he's going to destroy this. And Stephen never denies that. As a matter of fact, he quotes Isaiah 66.1 in his defense. He says, there's no need for temple worship. And Paul kind of hints at this too. So Christ identifies the new temple with his body and his body is the church and the church will become the new temple. And this is something that St. Paul in his letter to Corinthians and letter to the Ephesians will talk. The church is holy. The church is a temple. It, the foundation are the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone and the principle of unity. And the Christians really are living stones. They're a consecrated priesthood. And even the body of the individual Christian is a temple because what dwells in the Christian? Holy Spirit, right? So, the temple, the temple. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about Scripture. Let's look at some of the passages and the importance of these things. A couple ones, I'll just give you the numbers. We can look at them and we'll, we'll maybe read through a couple of the more significant uh, passages in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we're told about the purification according to the law of Moses, when he was taken up to be presented to the Lord, to be bought back, to be redeemed. And of course, when Mary brings her son to offer him to the Lord, it's the greatest offering in the history of the world, right? Better than any ram, bullock, because what is she offering? The body, blood, soul, and divinity. She's offering her divine son back to the heavenly father. We are also told in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, that each year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So that means what? They have a lamb. Can you see Jesus carrying a little lamb? I mean, this starts to give you a sense of why he breaks down and weeps when the time comes. Think of all those memories as a little kid going there with your family, your relatives, you're celebrating the Passover, you're going up to the temple, times of joy, times of happiness, and here he is, the true Lamb, because that's what John the Baptist says, right? Ecce, agnus Dei, tollis peccata mundi, behold the Lamb of God. All the types, all the prefigurements, that time was over, and there was something special so at age 12, he goes there and then he lingers. He can't stay away. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business in my father's house? And that's of course, when Joseph exits. You never hear about Joseph again in the gospel after that. Once he acknowledges the divine paternity of the heavenly father. Now, a couple other things, staying with Luke because Luke is such a sensitive writer. Uh, he's a medical man, very sensitive to human pain and suffering. If you want to look up a couple passages, I know you're Catholic, so it will take time. Luke chapter 13, I haven't printed out, so it's okay. Luke chapter 13, go to verse 33, I'm sorry, 34 and 35, Luke 13. And here he speaks with incredible tenderness about Jerusalem, which really reveals his love. There he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone, those sent to you. How many times I yearned, I longed, with this sort of heartfelt longing. I yearned to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were unwilling. Behold, your house will be abandoned. But I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice the tenderness. And here our Lord is using an image of maternal love motherly love, as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Have you ever seen that? Very protective, very nurturing. That's the kind of love. That's what he wanted for Jerusalem. It's so beautiful. You know, that's why you have to remember, even when there's the confrontations and the anger, like when he's going after the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He's speaking from a broken, wounded heart. He's doing everything he can to break through the hardness of their heart just had a moving homily out at the, the college in our chapel where it was the reading, I think it was in Mark's Gospel. Remember the guy with the withered hand? It's horrible. And, and Father William, who's one of our chaplains out there, it's kind of a personal story, it was in a horrible accident. He was burned over 75% of his body and uh, has a little feeling in his fingers and his fingers are kind of stubbed a little bit. And he recalled going into the hospital to the rehabilitation room where they're trying to work, trying to get him the use of his hands back. And he says, and there were people who had hands in far worse shape than he is. And then after reading that gospel, he says, how can anyone not want a man with a withered hand to be healed? Could've heard a pin drop. How could anyone want that? And Jesus says, stretch forth your hand and he heals them. And what do they do? They immediately go out and plot How to kill him. You can't heal a man on the Sabbath, but it's okay to plot someone's murder on the Sabbath. But I mean, but you understand this is what he's dealing with. And it really breaks his heart. I mean, I think one of the greatest proofs of our Lord's divinity is when he's nailed on the cross and everyone's mocking him. And what's the first thing out of his mouth? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's God. I'm sorry, that's unbelievable. After what that man had gone through, and you're being mocked, spit upon, forgive them, Father, interceding. Total forgiveness, total love. And that's what motivates him here. Go now to Luke 19, verse 41. And this is from the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives, looking towards the east, all right? In 1941, we read as follows And as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If this day you only knew what makes for peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days are coming upon you when your enemies will raise a palisade against you. They will encircle you and hem you in on all sides. They will smash you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another within you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. All right, fairly powerful. He loved Jerusalem he loved the temple but the hardness of heart the lack of receptivity and what was he seeing as he looked at that and he makes that first initial prediction in luke 19 william thomas walsh describes it very vividly in his book saint peter the apostle and i'll give you the quote it was not the white glory of the temple and the palaces on the western hill that he saw now but the tenth legion camping on the very spot where he paused on the right and on the left of him, the battering rams and mounds, the four trenches around the castle Antonia, the dead bodies falling from the walls, the unburied corpses in the streets, the children eating dung, the silence of death falling, the despairing priests leaping into the flames, end quote. That's what he saw, that's what he knew. Now, of course, we can go on, but I'm not gonna have time. There's the whole cleansing of the temple that is mentioned in Luke, Matthew, and Mark, which is very important because why? My house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting Micah, but you have made it a den of thieves. A den of thieves. Now, remember, this is the court of Gentiles, and there's so much noise. Now, remember, this is important for us because most of us are Gentiles. All right. This is where righteous Gentiles would come to try to pray. And that's where the fleecing, the noise, the dung, the commotion all took place. It's like, it doesn't matter. You're not part of Israel. We can do all that filthy stuff there because we don't really care whether you can pray or not. Won't happen in the inner court or the court of the Israelites. You see that? So again, it's this indignation that the temple was meant to be for all people and that was kind of roping off that exclusivity. Don't go beyond here or we will kill you because you're not of our blood, all right? It's one of the great signs of the universality, the Catholicity of the church and the religion that Jesus Christ was to bring to all of us. All right, so he drives them all out. Now it is significant, of course, Uh, in John's gospel that he speaks specifically and very powerfully of the destruction of that temple. And uh, I'd want to say, I'm going to run out of time. But anyway, it is interesting to note Uh, a couple of things. But before we go to John, one other passage that oftentimes is not really associated, but speaks about the destruction of the temple, and you should get it in your notes if if you're keeping notes. It's Luke chapter 20, verse 1 to 18. And I'd like to read this with you because most of the time, the destruction of the temple, they go to the end of the world discourse. And we will do that. But this is a passage that's very important as well. So we should take a look at it. All right. So, this is after sort of he cleans the temple out and clears it out. Now, remember, they want a sign because they recognize what? When he cleans out the temple, he's claiming to be the Messiah. They know that that's a messianic claim when he clears out the temple. So, that's why they say, give us a sign if you're the Messiah. And that's what you find in Luke 20 verse 1 to 18. One day as we're teaching the people in the temple area and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and scribes came together with the elders, approached him and said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Now see, they already know. He's already told them repeatedly where his authority has come from. But now because he's teaching the crowds in the temple precincts, they want to try to drive a wedge between him and the crowds. He said to them in reply, I shall ask you a question. And this is typical rabbinical, totally historically authentic. This is the way the rabbis taught. You ask a question, I counter with a question. Still exists to this day. All right. Tell me, was John's baptism of heavenly or of human origin? Because he knows he wants to get the people away from him. That's their whole goal. They discussed among themselves and said, if we say of heavenly origin, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, then all the people will stone us for they're convinced that John was a prophet. Do you see the problem? All they're thinking about is what? Themselves, politics. They don't really want truth. They don't want an answer. This is this hardness of heart that he keeps trying to break through and is so hard. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, neither shall I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he proceeded to tell the people this parable. Listen to the parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went on a journey for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenant farmers to receive some of the produce of the vineyard, but they beat the servant and sent him away empty handed. So he proceeded to send another servant, but him also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. So he proceeded to send a third, but this one too, they wounded and threw out." Do you notice what he's teaching? The patience of God. The patience, the humility, sends one, they kill him, sends another, kill him, beat him, throw him out. The patience of God. Then he said, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I shall send my beloved son. They will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they said to one another, this is the heir. Let us kill him that the inheritance may become ours. See what he does? He just strips the mask off. He knows what they want. They want to kill him. All right. And so he goes on. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him outside the city, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and put those tenant farmers to death and turn over the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they exclaimed, let this not be so. Now notice all the people hearing him understand exactly what he's saying, that the vineyard's going to go. It's going to be given off to somebody else, not the Jews. But to somebody else, to the Gentiles, they say, let it not be so. But he looked at them and asked, what does this scripture passage mean? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's he turning their attention to? Himself. Away from the temple, right? Do you see what's going on here? Away from the vineyard. What does that scripture mean? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be dashed to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. Speaking about himself, he is going to be the cornerstone. He will be the cornerstone. And then, of course, John goes on to give his great uh, prophecy as well. Now, one other passage we can look at quickly before we get to the destruction passages. In John chapter four, verse 19 to 24, another passage that frequently is not referred to, but in John chapter four, there is the discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well, remember that? And of course, she's a Samaritan, she's a half-breed. The Jews viewed them with contempt, all right? But in John chapter four, verse 19, 24, the woman said to him, sir, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but your people say that the place to worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, the hour is coming. Now the hour in John's gospel always refers to his passion, right? What me to thee, woman, my hour has not yet come which can also be translated by the way, has not my hour come, which in some way makes more sense, it's another talk. Anyway, all right. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So again, you see what's going on? Jerusalem is not going to be the cultic center anymore. So again, he gets mocked uh, during his crucifixion, claiming he was going to destroy the temple and all of that. But let's look at the prediction passages that refer to that. I'll give you the passages, and you can look them up. Now the problem with the end of the world passages and the destruction of the Jerusalem passage is they tend to be confusing. And the reason they tend to be confusing is they talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world and Jesus coming at the end of the world. So what I've done is isolate the passages that seem to speak specifically of Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, those passages would be chapter 21 verses 5 to 7, 20 to 24, and then 29 to 33. The parallel passages for your own study and reflection and prayer during Lent. (laughs) Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 to 2, then move to 15 to 22, then 32 to 34. And then in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 1 to 2, 14 to 20, and then 28 to 31. Now, the two are blended together for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Jews could not imagine the temple not existing to the end of the world because this was the temple. And so the destruction of the temple and the parousia, the end of the world, are interwoven together. And it's what we would call a multiple fulfillment pattern in prophecy, where a prophecy is fulfilled one time in, li- in a literal, concrete way, but will be fulfilled even again in a broader, fuller way later on. So the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was a type of the end of the world. Does that make sense? And so that's why they're woven together. Now of course, let's go through uh, Luke's passage and we'll talk about that. And then I'll maybe give one other passage. But most of them say he says essentially the same thing. So let's start with Luke chapter 21, verse 5 to 7. While some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, he said, all that you see here, the days will come where there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will this happen? And what sign will there be that all these things are about to happen? Then going on to verse 20 to 24. Now notice how clear this is. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is at hand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Let those within the city escape from it, and those in the countryside not enter the city. Because a lot of them did at the time of Passover, even during the siege. Anyway, for these days are the time of punishment, when all the scriptures are fulfilled. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Now, isn't that beautiful? In every one of those synoptic passages, he's really concerned about pregnant women and nursing mothers. is that beautiful? He loved kids. Suffer not the little children to come to me. But woe in the sense, how horrible, how horrible. For a terrible calamity will come upon the earth and wrathful judgment upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken as captives to all the Gentiles, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Then he goes on. He taught them a lesson. This is in the final, 29 to 33. Consider the fig tree and all the other trees. When their buds burst open, you see for yourselves and you know that summer is now near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here we are in 2010, and you're hearing those very words. Prophecy absolutely true. Now, if you look at all of these things, there is a real sorrow. There's one thing where he seems to be going back to Bethany, but he stops, turns around, and looks, and then gives the prophecy, which is so sad, so painful. And he, again, a couple of the other passages where he says, woe to, in, like in Matthew, woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Always a special act of compassion there. Pray your flight be not in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now, it's very interesting. Pray, and it's almost like he's praying it won't be on the winter or on the Sabbath. And guess what? It was not. It was not. It actually took place in the summer. So evidently the prayer, the mercy that was sought was actually actually achieved. All right. Those prophecies, look at them, study. They're all accurate. They all speak the same way. See these stones. All right. Well, in 66 AD, there was an incident, a vulgar incident at Caesarea where a mob of the citizens at Caesarea by the sea ended up slaughtering all of the Jews in the city. There were about 20,000 Jews who were slaughtered. Uh, The Roman procurator, Florus, Uh, rather than showing sympathy, actually had the Jews that were survived chained and had them publicly flogged. This led to outrage so much that a rebellion broke out in 66 AD. We're obviously now moving to the war. This insurrection of the Jews was to last from 66 to 70 AD. All the horrors of war, the horrors of human tragedy are found therein. Tacitus, Josephus, and Eusebius all report that there were strange omens before 66 that indicated that there was going to be a horrible devastation that was going to take place. There was a star that hung above Jerusalem and shone light that looked like a dagger directly over the temple. There was white light that filled the sanctuary one night, and then the doors—that great gate that I told you took twenty men to move—those doors that were bolted and sealed opened and just swung open. They ran and told the captain of the temple guard, and they came back, and the twenty men closed it. And they were wondering, "What does this mean?" Man, oh, it's an omen. It's an omen. But when the doors opened, they heard this voice shout, "Us, shout out, let us depart from here. not that weird? Tacitus mentions it. Josephus mentions it. But they didn't know what it meant. Then one particular sunset, Jerusalem was surrounded by these enormous cloud banks, and they saw, everyone in the city saw, visions of army and horses and things surrounding the city. This was all in 64 and 65. Josephus mentions it, Tacitus mentions it, and Eusebius mentions all of these omens. There's other ones, you can read it. Uh, But then again, the Jews drive out the Romans out of Jerusalem, the Romans agree to lay down their arms and march out and they have this agreement. So as soon as the Romans lay down their arms, the Jews attack them and murder every single one of them, just kill them in cold blood. Uh, and actually the Jews have some success at the beginning. A Roman legion sent from Syria will be bested by the Jews who fight with ferocity and great tenacity. But in the spring of 67, Rome's finest general arrived to crush the rebellion. Vespasian, who was selected by Nero in 66 when the rebellion took place, sent Vespasian. Now, Vespasian was a great military man. It's amazing that Nero picked him because when Nero was reciting one of his poems, he actually dozed off and fell asleep. Nero was furious, could have killed him. But he recognized he was a great general. So he sent him off along with his son Titus, to fight this war. Now Josephus wrote this magnificent work, uh, The Jewish War. It's a painful read. It's a dark read. It's very difficult to spend time going through it, but if you want to and really want to get a sense of Jewish heroism and all that was involved in it, this is a great book. Josephus himself was Jewish thought it was a mistake to fight against Rome. They never should have fought against Rome, but once the Jews went into rebellion, he led Jewish forces in Galilee, was responsible. When Vespasian came into the area, the Jewish forces in Galilee collapsed in front of the Roman onslaught. He went up to a fortified city of Jotapata and defended that against the Romans for two months He held out. It's a fascinating story. All narrated in here if you want to read it. And eventually he's captured. Half the Romans want him killed as an enemy. The others want to keep him alive. And then Josephus makes a prophecy. says, Vespasian, you're going to become the emperor. And the emperor does not kill him. And eventually he stays there on the Roman side for the rest of the siege. And he was an eyewitness to many of the events uh, that took place there. Now, eventually... Jerusalem gets surrounded by Vespasian. It's a horrible situation. Remember in Luke chapter 23, verse 28 to 31, as Jesus is walking along the Via Dolorosa, along the streets of Jerusalem carrying his cross, he turned to the daughters of Jerusalem, and what does he say? Do not weep for me. Weep instead for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming when people will say, Blessed are the barren, the wounds that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. At that time, people will say to the mountains, Fall upon us, and to the hills, cover us. For if these things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Very, very powerful, and that's exactly what hap- what's going to happen. In the winter of 68, the Zealot army, under the command of John of Geshele, who was in, in an Idumean army under Eleazar, Come into, the, come into Jerusalem and they're concerned that there are people in Jerusalem who want to support the enemy Romans. They gather 8,500 men right in front of the temple who they believe are friendly to the Romans and they murder them all, just slaughter them all, kill them, slit their throats. Josephus says there was an enormous lake of blood in front of the temple from the slaughter. I mean, imagine you're killing 8,500 people. There was a lake of blood in front of the temple. Now, it's interesting to note that Eusebius in his church history tells us that the Christians remembering the prophecy and seeing the arrival of the Roman army fled from Jerusalem and went to the city of Pella, which is very important testimony supporting that our Lord did in fact make this prophecy that was understood. So most of the Christians were spared from this when they saw the Roman army coming. All right, then all sorts of chaos. Remember wars and rumors of wars and in June of 68 Nero kills himself whimpering, Galba replaces him but he's killed in January of 69. The year 69 AD was called the year of the four emperors. Emperor after emperor killing, dying and then eventually Uh, the army ends up proclaiming (laughs) Vespasian emperor. And eventually his armies, he's proclaimed up in the armies on the Danube, his soldiers take Rome, and he eventually leaves, leaving the assault on Jerusalem to his son Titus. But in Jerusalem, murder, rape, perversion, the zealots turn the temple into a place of sacrilege and horror. They're attacking one another, fighting one another, Uh, these three factions, and madness and chaos reigns. By July of 69, they're completely surrounded, and Titus, after several assaults, fail, but they begin to build this enormous wall around it, starting, they cut all the olive trees down in the Garden of Gethsemane for the building of their towers, and then what happens is starvation breaks out. Now, this is a quote. I'm going to kind of edit it because it's pretty intense, but I want to give you a sense of what's going here, and then I'll give you this quote, and then I will rapidly conclude before Sabatino gets the hook out, all right. So it was that the unhappy people were beguiled at that stage by cheats and false messengers of God while the unmistakable portents occurred. This is where he talks about all the different portents, but I want to give you more the quote. For the wealthy it was just as dangerous to stay in the city as to leave it. For on the pretext that he was a deserter, many a man was killed for the sake of his money. As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the partisans increased with it. And every day these two tears strengthened their grip. For nowhere was there corn to be seen. Men broke into the houses and ransacked them. If they found some, they maltreated the occupants for saying there was none. If they did not, they suspected them of having hidden it more carefully and tortured them. Proof that they had or had not food was provided by the appearance of the unhappy wretches. If they still had flesh on their bones, they were deemed to have plenty of stores. If they were already reduced to skeletons, they were passed over, for it seemed pointless to dispatch those who were certain to die of starvation before long. Many secretly exchanged their possessions for a measure of corn, wheat if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor. Then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their houses, where some through extreme hunger ate their grain as it was. Others made bread, necessity, and fear of being the only guides. Nowhere was a table laid. They snatched the food from the fire while it was still uncooked, and they ate like wolves. The sight of such misery would have brought tears to the eyes, for while the strong had more than enough, the weak were in desperate straits all human feelings, alas, yield to hunger, of which decency is always the first victim. For when hunger reigns, restraint is abandoned. Thus it was that wives robbed their husbands, children their fathers, and most horrible of all, mothers their babes, snatching the food out of their very mouths. And when their dearest ones were dying in their arms, they did not hesitate to deprive them of the morsels that might have kept them alive. This way of satisfying their hunger did not go unnoticed. Everywhere the partisans were ready to swoop, even on such pickings. Whenever they saw a locked door, they concluded that those within were having a meal and instantly burst the doors open and rushed in and hardly stopped short of squeezing their throats to force out the morsels of food. They beat old men who held onto their crust, tore the hair of women who hid what was in their hands. They showed no pity for gray hairs or helpless babyhood, but picked up the children as they clung to their precious scraps dashing them on the floors. If anyone anticipated their entry by gulping down what they hoped to seize, they themselves felt defrauded and retaliated with worse savagery. I won't tell you what they did, but the next paragraph is far worse than that, the type of tortures that were done. They eventually become deprived of all food. Uh, Can you handle one more paragraph? Okay, let me give you one more paragraph then. The Jews, now unable to leave the city, were deprived of all hope of survival. The famine became more intense and devoured whole houses and families. The roofs were covered with women and infants too weak to stand, the streets full of old men already dead. Young men and boys, swollen with hunger, haunted the squares like ghosts and fell wherever faintness overcame them. To bury their kinsfolk was beyond the strength of the sick, and those who were fit shirked the task because of the number of the dead and the uncertainty about their own fate, for Many, while burying others, fell dead themselves, and many set out for their graves before their hour struck. In their misery, no weeping or lamentation was heard. Hunger stifled emotion. With dry eyes, those who were slow to die watched those whose end came sooner. Deep silence enfolded the city, and darkness burdened with death. Worse still were the zealots, and the, the zealots keep continuing to rob people. Goes on to say they devoured belts, shoes, strips of leather from their shield, they eat that. And it goes on, of course, one of the most horrible things, they find a woman who actually roasted her own infant, ate half the infant and said, you can have the rest if you want. But I mean, this total lack of human feeling. Uh, the bodies, they begin to just throw the bodies over the wall. Titus is so horrified. He says, surrender, just surrender. He offers generous terms. They absolutely refuse. No one is allowed to go outside the city. Some that try to do are actually crucified outside the city. There are so many bodies laying outside on the hills outside Jerusalem. As they continue to decompose, they begin to ooze. in Okay, but you get the sense. It is everything that our Lord said, let the mountains fall on us. Let it end, let it be over. What finally happens is by building this huge parapet, they break through the walls. The fighting actually begins in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, Titus doesn't want the temple destroyed, but once they break into there, this horrible fighting begins. A torch is thrown in through a window and the uh, the holy place starts to burn. The Jews all start screaming, trying to do what they can. Titus runs out, tries to get them to stop, but they see that they're in the temple, so there is this surge of the legionaries. They end up trampling on a lot of themselves. But even despite Titus's best effort to hold them back, they start throwing torches after torch, and the entire thing on August 10, 78, goes up in flames. Titus then can't stop them. The whole thing burns to the ground, and then Titus has the temple and the entire city razed. No Jew is allowed to live in Jerusalem. The 10th Legion will build an encampment on the ruins. It is estimated that one million Jews died in that. 97,000 survived. A number of them were taken for games and for sports. A large number were taken back to Rome. And in the year 71, there was a triumphal procession in Rome. The great menorah, the seven branch candlestick that stood in front of the curtain, that was brought to Rome. And as a matter of fact, at the end of the Roman forum, I was just standing right in front of this just uh, four days ago. The Arch of Titus that commemorates the literal fulfillment of our Lord's prophecy. On the inside, you can see the Jewish captives carrying the menorah in this magnificent triumph that was given to him. The Jewish leaders, John of Gishala and Simon bar also were in chain, brought back in that triumph. One of them was to die in the Mamertine prison where Peter and Paul had been imprisoned. The other, we don't know what happened. But that arch reminds us of the literal fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy. In conclusion, (laughs) both Eusebius and Josephus view this as the judgment of God for very different reasons. Josephus mentions a number of times that they did such profanation, so many horrible things were done in the city, in the temple precinct, that this was the wrath of God. He says they were punished for perversion, and there was real perversion, profanation, bloodshed, and Josephus also mentions prophecy that this temple would be destroyed. Doesn't attribute it to Jesus, but he mentions prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. Eusebius, very powerful, the church historian says, They murdered the author of life. They murdered God's son. They murdered Stephen. They beheaded James. They killed also James the less, James the greater. And all the apostles were driven out of Judea by their murderous plots. And so this became a great watershed moment in the history of our faith. The destruction of Jerusalem shifted the epicenter for Christianity away from Jerusalem and that type of particularism, where Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism, to the city of Rome. And that movement can clearly be seen in Luke's Gospel. Luke, like all the synoptics, begins in Galilee and ends in Jerusalem. But when you go to Acts of the Apostles, it begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. And with the destruction of that temple, the destruction of the cult, Judaism's hold over Christianity was no longer to be found. And Christianity now truly became in every way a missionary church ad gentes, a missionary church to the Gentiles. So it secured Rome as the new Jerusalem and the center of Catholic Christianity, clearly part of divine providence. Thank you very much.
0: Doctor, can you tell us the names of the two books that
1: you have there? The name of the two books. This is Eusebius's History of the Church, which is a wealth of great information, I mean outside of scripture. This is, has collected the greatest sources we have of information on what happened immediately uh to the apostles and to the early life of the church written by eusebius the second one is uh, josephus's it's a powerful work uh the jewish wars the first chapter has a lot of fascinating stuff about uh the herod family and all of that but the latter part, it, I mean, I love history, so I found it a very gripping narrative. But it, it is really hard to read. There is just, even in the Galilee battles, and the, there's just so much human suffering and tragedy. It's, it's, it, it's difficult to go through it, but it's, it's powerful. At the same time, and there's a lot of references in there too. Some of the things that he's not a Christian, so he doesn't acknowledge it. But like when some of the Jewish leaders try to flee and go over to the Romans, and they end up crucifying them facing the city the same way Christ had died. That that kind of, I mean, there's so many parallels to things that happen there. It's very intriguing. So Josephus, the Jewish Wars, and Eusebius, History of the Church.
0: the, uh, the Wailing Wall,
1: I understood that that did not get destroyed yeah the wailing wall okay the railing wall really was not a wall what the what the wailing wall is the platform sort of the, the the sort of lower stone structure upon which the temple was built that's the wailing wall so our lord's prophecy that not one stone of the temple upon will be left upon another that will not be thrown that was completely thrown down and the whole city was raised by the romans completely completely destroyed. There was one final Jewish rebellion, I think about 120, and then they did another destruction and they renamed it after Jupiter, Capitolinus, the city of Jerusalem. But that wailing wall is sort of the lower foundation level stone upon which the temple was built. But it's as close as they can get to that. But it's the wailing wall where they recall you know, the temple, because really that's one of the horrible things. I mean, the whole Jewish Old Testament religion of the centering upon the temple and animal sacrifice, that all has ended. So if you're reading the Old Testament, I mean, what has happened to Judaism? I mean, you have your synagogues now, but, I mean, that whole cultic practice of the Old Testament has ended, and that's why among some of the Orthodox there's a desire to try to rebuild the temple. For the second coming of the Messiah, do you believe or is there anything in Scripture that... Says that Jerusalem will play a particular role, and um, I know there's a lot of Christian sects that want to kind of bring on the second coming by flying Jews to Jerusalem. But do you
0: believe it'll play any significant role?
1: Do you see fiddler on the roof? I'll tell you, I don't know, but it's a (laughs) tradition anyway. But um, yeah, it's, it, is, it is certainly possible. Of course, there is the multi- Jerusalem. Clearly, was a type of the end of the world, and because something is fulfilled one time literally doesn't mean there can't be a broader fulfillment later on. Um, it is certainly significant. No one would have thought a hundred years ago that the Jews would have been gathered together in a homeland, in a national homeland, in the least happy spot of the world, uh, and they are there. And, uh, of course, the whole question, there are references in the book of Revelation to a new temple and to prophets and things like that. Now, again, whether those are types of figures, I, I mean, I don't want to speculate. I do know there is a desire on the part of some within the Orthodox community to rebuild that. Uh, I remember I was thinking very clearly, they supposedly already have plans drawn up, but I remember in the Gulf War, you might remember where our Patriot missiles were shooting up, knocking out those Scud missiles that were shooting in Israel. There was some concern that if a Scud missile hit the Dome of the Rock, and it was actually a Muslim nation that blew it up, well, all bets are off. I mean, if that's really destroyed by a missile, uh, why not rebuild the temple? on the Mount. And then, you know what, Armageddon would happen probably pretty quickly. But anyway, does that answer? So Jerusalem, there may be a role for Jerusalem, but again, I don't think there's any way you could know that absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Will there be a new temple? Will it be rebuilt? Will that be a sign of the end times? I don't know. Uh, Herod's temple sounds an amazing place. Do Do we have any idea of how it was financed There were several reasons why Herod was hated taxes were a big thing he did tax many of them but Herod despite that was very wealthy Uh, he controlled because he was down in Judea a number of the trade routes that went from Egypt along the Dead Sea he was able to impose tariffs and taxes and controlled a great deal of that trade so he was very wealthy but knowing also that his position as monarch was somewhat tenuous and that the Jews really didn't like him he poured a great deal of money and it's true even the Jews that didn't like him were thrilled with the temple. Now, he did, what he did was very delicate because remember, the temple of Zerubbabel was in existence. <laughs> what he did was, as he tore down, he built. So, and, and actually, the sanctuary, of the, holy, the, the, sanct, the holy place and the holy of holies, that was completed in about a seven month period, all right, because you couldn't lose that. But basically it was financed through taxation and through tariffs on particularly the southern trade routes that Herod had and enjoyed, and that's where most of the money went was to the building of that. But there were other huge building projects, Fortress Antonio, also Masada. There were other places where he built and extended uh, Jewish fortifications. And that's one of the reasons why the Romans were really intimidated. I mean, Jerusalem was a phenomenally strong city. I mean, the walls that the Jews had built, that Herod had built, uh, were massive and very, very difficult. And if you read the, the actual account of Josephus, you realize how the Jews on a number of occasions really bested the Romans and came very close a couple of times to actually turning the tide. But it was the Romans' ability to never acknowledge defeat. They would just keep coming and coming and coming, even building a wall just as big and just as high so that you could attack on a level playing field and building these enormous rams that began to smash through the gates. But it was a phenomenal achievement. But most of the temple was built through taxing and through tariff money made on caravan routes down in the south. Thank you, Dr. Donald. Thank you.